Hello. The Walk Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024 and they have evolved. We're now celebrating strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regions. It's our biggest award show yet. The great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix announced during Cannes Lions Week. And what hasn't changed is that all our entries will be rigorously judged and consistently benchmarked against the creative effectiveness ladder. So if you win a Global Walk Grand Prix, you can truly claim your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. I'm John Bazell, Walk's Awards Lead, and I'm here to encourage you to head straight to walk.com, download your entry pack, and send us your work by the early bird deadline on 12th of December to get the lowest fee. After that, fees double until the final deadline on the 6th of February. The Walk Awards 2024, strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name's Lena Rowland, Head of Content for Walk Strategy. And today we're talking about a new report, the Walk Guide to Creating Cultural Advantage. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Rika Facundo, Walk's Asia editor, who authored this report. Hey, Rika. Hey, Lena. So glad to be doing this podcast with you. I can't believe it's our first time together, despite working together for about, what, two years now? Yes, yes, it it is a first. So looking forward to it. So creating cultural advantage. Now it is a huge topic and you cover a lot in the guide. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to look at three key learnings that you want to highlight. But before we dive in, Rika, first, what exactly is cultural advantage? How are you defining it? Lena, I'll answer this question in two parts. First, we have to understand what exactly is culture, especially when it comes to marketing. If we take a step back, understanding culture is a big part of the discipline of social science. But what's happening in marketing is that culture has become this catch-all phrase and a shortcut for popularity and viral success that's in a lot of the briefs that agencies get these days. And this is something that Dr. Marcus Collins, author of For the Culture, points out, and is something I've personally seen during my time as a culture strategist long before joining WARC. And the key thing to understand here is that treating culture this way is superficial, but most importantly, it is risky. It is superficial because playing in culture should be about understanding the underlying forces that drive people's behaviors and attitudes. And it's risky because if you're only participating in culture to become viral, then you risk offending the communities that you're trying to reach and hurting a brand's equity in the process. We can all look at what happened with Bud Light of an example of where that's gone wrong. And this brings me to what culture advantage should be. These are brands that understand and participate in culture authentically and credibly. And by doing so, that is what enables that emotional connection that builds great brands. Great stuff. Thanks, Rika. That makes sense. Why, why, why is it important for brands to take notice? What's the urgency here? Culture is not a new thing. It's part and parcel of how we understand people and communities, like I mentioned earlier. But if we pause and look at this moment in time, the cultural landscape is super complicated and constantly changing. It's really hard to keep up with it. And as Nick Hope from Edelman mentioned in his contribution, there are just so many landmines now to navigate, which I'll touch on a little bit later. So if brands want to grow and resonate within across cultures, in the markets that they operate, the markets where they want to go to, they need to understand what's changing or else they will risk their brand reputation and bottom line, as I mentioned earlier. 
Okay, so serious stuff. Rika, let's let's dig in. What is the first takeaway you want to highlight from this guide? The first takeaway is the end of monoculture. So, Lena, as you know, um, a big part of my job as a regional editor is the need to localize. But when I was working on this report and when I took a step back, I realized that it's actually just a symptom of a bigger shift, that culture is no longer monolithic. And we're seeing this across multiple facets. Firstly, from a macroeconomic point of view, we see Western-led globalization slowing down. Countries like China and India are becoming economic powers. Even in Southeast Asia, where I'm based, we see the economic model moving away from being just a manufacturing hub of the West. Then if we look at pop culture, it's not just Hollywood exporting global culture. Everyone these days is watching like anime, Korean entertainment, Bollywood and India. And lastly, there is the diaspora and the rise of grassroots movements such as LGBTQ, influencing culture at the intersection of various demographic, psychographic, and geographic factors. So, Lena, it's really not one size fits all anymore. How about the impact of the internet? Have you seen it convolute the dynamics of culture? I can't believe I forgot about the internet. Of course, the internet is super important in how it influences culture. And our contributors from Amaru outlined this quite nicely. Ultimately, the internet has amplified the voice of the consumer who are challenging old dynamics, such as Western culture dominance and brands that exploit culture without giving back. And this is what they coined culture 1.0 and culture 2.0. But they pointed out that we are now entering culture 3.0, an era of fragmentation where mainstream pop culture is losing its appeal. And in its place is the rise of niche subcultures and communities with consumers who want authentic engagement and are unafraid to hold brands accountable to it. Yeah, and this is something that we've covered a lot on on walks throughout throughout the year. Um, Rika, how can marketers respond to the end of monoculture? Because that's quite a big deal. Oh, Lena, there are so many that we mentioned in the guide. I could go on and on, but if I could pick one, it's that... Gaining consumer trust is becoming more local. And we presented data from Edelman that showed that a growing source of trust amongst consumers that we feature is that it's about people in my community or my neighbors. And this has important implications on the way that we market to consumers. It's not just about messaging or doing grassroots outreach, but has an interesting implication on media placements. And one of the trends that we pointed out particularly emerging in places like India and Australia, is the importance of regional media in connecting with consumers because regional media tends to focus on the issues that really impact the community that the consumers want to feel connected to. Rika, what's the second key takeaway from this guide that you want to talk about today? The second key takeaway is that culture is a double-edged sword of polarization and connection. In my experience, I've always seen culture as a way to connect. That's my bias, and I'm quite the optimist that way. But creative cultures, Paola van Kappelen reminded me that strong cultures can also divide, hence this period of polarization that we're feeling around the world. Big question, Rika. Why has the world become more polarized? Oof, that is a big question, Lena. And again, I could talk about that for many, many, many minutes or hours. But I think if we, again, take a step back, I think most people are familiar with polarization in the U.S. context. But actually, 
this is becoming a problem in markets all around the world caused by a lot of factors. And some of these factors that our contributors pointed out was that there's failing economic optimism, there's a mass class divide, and all these factors are causing this perfect storm of polarization. And the reason why this impacts marketing is because it breeds mistrust among consumers, making them highly more sensitive to faux pas. I remember chatting with one of my contributors when we were brainstorming and we were lamenting, why are people so sensitive nowadays? And it's exactly that, this heightened fear um, creating that, that environment. Yeah, indeed. And, and Rika, have you got any, adv- any advice for marketers and how they can better navigate cultural sensitivities? I would push marketers to sense check the paradigm that they're evaluating creative ideas from and take a local first approach to global campaigns. How mindful are they of local realities, especially in more conservative countries? I want to cite a controversy um, that happened um, in, in Malaysia. So I don't know how many of our listeners listened to 1975, but they played in Malaysia. And what happened is that the lead singer kissed a fellow band member and openly attacked the government stance on LGBTQIA. What the coverage was is that local fans exclaimed that he actually set the queer agenda back with this what they called the white savior stunt. Again, it's not about, you know, pushing those progressive ideals. It's about understanding, you know, what is the local context so that you can approach that messaging more thoughtfully and avoid this controversy with what happened with, with the band. That's really interesting because that made headlines over here in the UK. So it's really interesting to get your take on how that landed locally in the market and and the implications around that. Okay, Rika, so what's the last key takeaway from the report that you want to talk about? The last key takeaway is that the devil is in the nuance. So Ultimately, if I had to pick one big takeaway from the guide is that marketers need to move beyond a just enough understanding of their consumers. Like I mentioned earlier, it's not about being trending or viral, but making sure you deeply understand uh, your consumers, their culture, etc. So therefore, the devil is in the nuance and we have to change the way we work in order to get there. So my last key takeaway is more focused on the process of how we get there. And what are the nuances that marketers tend to miss? Firstly, it's our inputs. One of the inputs commonly cited with cultural insights is qualitative inputs, and that's super important. But I want to highlight another form of input that also needs to be rigorously checked, which is data. We need to make sure that it is not biased. And I would ask the question, does your data set overrepresent or underrepresent certain groups, or is it language inclusive? One just has to play around with AI-generated images to see how the images that come back are very biased. It is not the AI's fault. AI is a tool. But for me, all those examples that I've seen is a signal of the quality of inputs that we're feeding it. So again, we need to really make sure that we sense check and culture check the data. Rika, we will save Gen AI for another podcast because there's lots to unpack there. Um, so that's from an input perspective. How do we need to change the way we collaborate? There's a term that Wendy Sue from Essence Mediacom coined in her contribution, and she said that CQ, our cultural intelligence, is the next EQ. 
And she outlined a four-point framework about how to create an organizational culture that enables brands to harness that diverse thinking and sense-check bias, not because of when it actually needs to happen, the campaign, but you're, if you're so ingrained in it, you know, you'll be able to call that out as and when. So she gave examples of simple things, such as being aware of how we socialize and provide permission for people of different cultures to participate in their own ways. For example, are we over-indexing on giving opportunities to the person who can speak English rather than giving an opportunity to a non-native speaker who might have the better expertise? Another thing to point out is that localization, which is, again, part and parcel of any global brand operating in different markets, is not just about translation of language, but it's about cultural integration within the organization. It's about behaviors and its attitudes. And this is something that Phoebe Shun from Ruderfin advised in her contribution. So we've covered inputs. Um, what about the outputs? What do we need to consider there? If culture is no longer monolithic, as I mentioned earlier, that means that you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. And that means you have to recontextualize the stories we tell. And one of the suggestions from Lawrence Lim, a contributor from Cherry Blossom, is to take a cultural hybrid approach. It's not top-down, bottom-up, etc. But how do we encourage dialogue between cultures instead of force-fitting one culture on another? And a key part of that is also to see culture as a place to give and not to take, which is something that Dr. Marcus Collins also advised. And this is an important thing to think about when you are collaborating in with the communities that a lot of marketers are trying to do. But how are you co-creating with them? How are you creating shared value so that it creates that reciprocity and you know is additive instead of exploitative? Lastly, we have to flip the script in casting. For example, can we use underrepresented groups to tell universal stories of human connection? And I always reference what Marvel and Disney is doing with movies like Miss Marvel and, and Turning Red. They're using underrepresented communities, the Muslim community, as well as the Chinese Canadian community to talk about universal stories of, you know, being a underdog as well as, you know, puberty and coming of age. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Rika, for sharing your time and expertise with me today. Thank you so much, Lena. And I also want to thank all our contributors who gave their global perspectives on this guide. If you're interested in more on this topic, Walk subscribers can access the guide on walk.com and non-subscribers can download a summary version from the web. If you haven't done so already, you may want to subscribe to the Walk podcast on your favorite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss another episode. Thank you for listening.